worship arts team was down in Nashville this week record, laying down tracks for a project that is upcoming. So keep just, so just want to like tease that out for you. Hold your breath. Good things are coming uh, down the road from that, t- from that team. We're wrapping up a five-week series on worship, and we've been looking at worship encounters in the Old Testament, and today we're going to talk about one of the very few songs that's actually recorded word for word. We get like every lyric from a very ancient worship song, and I call it a freedom song. It is a celebration of deliverance, and we're going to get a chance to look at it together. But first, we need to start with this idea of freedom. When I was 16 years old, I was on the swim team for Lyons Township High School in suburban Chicago, LaGrange, Illinois. And one winter afternoon, we loaded a standard yellow school bus for an away meet at our rival York High School in Elmhurst. Now, they'd never really given us a run for our money in the pool, so we went into that that meet pretty relaxed. And I remember joking with some friends as we got ready in their visitor's locker room. And between the lockers and the pool deck door, there was an an area that was enclosed by a steel metal grate floor to ceiling. And so trying to be funny, I walked inside the door and I shut it with a clang. And I said, hey, look at me, I'm in a cage. I don't know why I was amused by myself. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, at, At least until I went to unlatch the door and it wouldn't move. I'm like, oh, this isn't funny anymore. So I was like, hey, guys, could you do me a favor? Could, could, you, could you let me out? Uh, but it wouldn't unlock from their side either. So about like seven minutes of desperation while I had to wait for a facilities worker from that school to come and let me out. I cannot recall how I did in any of my races that day, but I will not forget being locked in a cage. I had trained for months and traveled all the way across town to compete, but I almost missed it because of a thoughtless and reckless decision that left me trapped. And the relief that I felt when that maintenance worker liberated me was real. My first thought was, I'm never getting stuck in a cage again. And I haven't, at least not one like that. But if you are at all like me, you have made other reckless, thoughtless, impulsive decisions in your life that have put you not in metal cages, but in psychological, spiritual, emotional ones. A few years ago, for me, it was a cage of resentment. I was stuck in a bitterness loop, just continuing to nurse old wounds until they evolved into cynicism and bitterness and resentment. But God was gracious to provide a way out to experience freedom from that particular set of circumstances. And maybe you feel stuck today. And the good news is we are going to be talking about a God who sets stuck people free. And we find this amazing story in Exodus chapter 14. If you need a copy of the scriptures, do us a favor, just raise your hand. The team will come down and then just go ahead and flip to page 69, Exodus, the second section of the First Testament. I had a graduate school prof say, we don't call it the Old Testament. We don't like stuff that is old. Let's call it the First Testament. So we're in the First Testament today, Exodus chapter 14. At this point in the story, the people of Israel have been enslaved in Egypt for generations. And God has announced to them that they're going to be set free. And so God sends a plague. He sends this kind of hardship on the people of Israel to get their king, on the people of Egypt to get their king Pharaoh's attention. They get 10 plagues. And after the 10th plague, Pharaoh finally breaks down. He says, fine, Moses, you can take your people and leave. 
And this is where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. God is giving them directions. It's kind of like the ancient ways. He's telling them which way to go. And there, he said this, they are to encamp by the sea. Directly opposite Baal's phone, Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is a recurring theme in the book of Exodus. And he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Egyptians did this. So God actually walks the Israelites right up to the edge of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh does indeed take the bait. He's like, hey, they're stuck. They're wandering around. Maybe it's not too late to get them back and re-enslave every last one of them. So as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. What they don't realize in that moment is that God has specifically sent them into a situation where he intended for them to be overwhelmed. God said, here, go stand by this wall. And then he sent their enemies to push them up against it. Sometimes we don't know why God does that in the moment. But I have to choose to remember that God is orchestrating the events in my life, either actively or passively, for his glory and for my good. Then the Israelites said this to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So the Israelites, they've been free for all of what? Like eight hours? And they're like, this was a bad idea. We never asked to be freed. We want to go back to our slave beds. At least there we had a regimen. We had a routine. We had three square meals a day. This freedom thing is new and scary and overwhelming and we don't like it anymore. And sometimes I, will, I could very easily become an ancient Israelite. I'll, I, sometimes I'll catch myself saying, if I cannot picture a positive outcome, I will pull my praise. If I can't envision victory, I will withhold my worship. Rather than trusting God's character in times of oppression, I try to bargain. I go, God, you show me that it's going to be good, and then I will praise you. But I had a friend, when I was going through a dark time a few years ago, she told me this. She goes, one of the best lines that I heard from a mentor was this. God, when I cannot see your hand, I will trust your heart. When I can't see what you're doing, I am going to default to my best understanding of your character. And if your character is good, I have to believe that in time, your actions, even if they're confusing to me now, will make sense. Every single one of us arrive at an intersection where we have to choose between slavery and uncertainty. When I choose to be mastered by anything other than Christ, I am settling for the illusion that I am under control. And when I'm in control, I might not love the life that I'm living, but at least I believe I'm calling the shots. And at least I know what I'm going to get. The Israelites, when, they, when the moment of truth came, they said, you know what? Rather than the uncertainty of knowing how this battle is going to end, I would choose the predictability of slavery. Rather than stepping into the unknown, I, I, I want to choose what was on my calendar. I knew what was going to happen every single day. And when we choose slavery rather than uncertainty, we might be broke, we might be trapped, we might be bitter, but when we do it for long enough, we become comfortable. 
Some of you know that my wife Kelly and I were new to the area and we're trying to get settled in and we just decided that just for fun, we would add a new everything at the same time. New schools, new houses, new jobs. And against our better judgment, we threw a new pet into the mix. We got a puppy a week ago and he's nine weeks old and that's been fun times for everybody who's involved. And so I took him to the vet this last week, and while I was there, I was, again, overwhelmed by how many things the pet industry likes to sell to uh, gullible new pet owners like myself, and I saw a product that I had never heard of before, and this was called a thunder blanket. Anybody have a thunder blanket for their dogs? Some of, yeah, some of you do. All right. It is a, I didn't never see this before. It is a weighted vest that helps dogs who struggle with anxiety. It's like wearing a lead apron that you have to get when you're getting an old school x-ray. You remember that when they put like that big, that 20 pound blanket on you? Now, if you wear that all the time, you just tend to get used to the weight. But the problem was you were never created, intended, or designed to carry that weight. But when it becomes our only security blanket, we choose it even though it slows us down. So here's the question that you gotta ask yourself. Do you wanna be free? Or do you wanna be comfortable? Do you wanna be free from your hurts? Because every single one of us who's struggling with anger these days, we're enslaved to our hurts. Somebody hurt us, and that gave birth to anger, and because we can't let the hurt go, we can't let the anger go, and because we can't let the anger go, we're losing our joy. Do you wanna be free? Some of us have habits, destructive habits that we keep going back to because we can't trust God to heal the hurts or to navigate the uncertainty. So we kind of grip on to things that we can control to try to give our lives a sense of escape or a semblance of predictability. Do you want to be free even if it means doing something that doesn't make sense? God asked the Israelites to do something that didn't make any sense at all. He said, I, I'm going to set you free and I'm going to send you into a dead end. They're like, yeah, that doesn't compute. We don't like this. Central Celebrate Recovery Ministry is coming up on their one-year anniversary. And Celebrate Recovery is this amazing program that helps those of us who are dealing with our hurts and our habits and our hangups to find freedom. But it means doing some things that are initially uncomfortable, like going into a room that might be filled with strangers and talking about some issues in our life that we haven't been able to wrangle under control. It means that we have to take a serious look in the mirror and say, God, will you tell me what's true about me even if it's not something that I would choose to hear? God, will you help me look into my own personal darkness, not so that I can drown in shame, but so that I can get at the root of what has enslaved me? Do you wanna be free or do you want to be comfortable even if it means surrendering your destiny so you can choose to be comfortable, but that might mean walking away from the person that God created you to be and calls you to become. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Fear and deliverance are mutually incompatible. They cannot occupy the same space. And I don't know about you, but most, grow, many of us grew up here in America and we've been kind of sold this Horatio Alger story where whenever you get stuck, you, you, you dig yourself out of that hole. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're the, you're the savior of your own problems. That's why our, our bookstores and our libraries are just inundated with self-help books. 
But here's what I've learned. I go, fear strangles the self-declared savior. Fear strangles the self-declared savior. If I have to be my own savior, if I have to rescue myself and my family from every obstacle, fear is going to drown me because at my, at my core, at my heart of hearts, I know that I don't have it within me to conquer every obstacle that lives outside of me. The Israelites are frightened because they have no means to defeat the Egyptians. In their mind, there's only two options. They can fight and they'll lose because they're outmatched and they're outgunned, or they can die. Those are their only options. They can fight or they can die, or they can fight and they could die. But there's no, there's no other outcome that they can imagine. But God says there's a third option that you have not considered. He goes, I have never asked you to fight these Egyptians. I didn't ask you to fight them before. I'm not asking you to fight them now. All I want you to do is to be still. Now, how many of us would rather fight than be still? I told you that I was a volunteer police chaplain once, and I remember going to a, like a ground fighting tactic session. And I remember one of my colleagues, an amazing Lutheran pastor at our local church, she goes, so if I get into a fight, what's my, like, what's my secret move? Like, what's my throat punch? Like, what's my, what's my Vulcan death grip? Like, what do I do to lay a guy out? And the guy goes, yeah, that doesn't exist. He goes, if, you, if things ever go completely left, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get into the fetal position on the ground and protect your vital organs. I'm like, yeah, that's not happening. Like, I'll, I'll just go down flailing even if I get hurt way worse. He goes, he goes, your best chance to save your life is to protect yourself. I'm like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna do that, I wanna fight. And God says to the Israelites, don't do that. A, you're not equipped for it. B, you'll have your confidence in yourself. C, it's all gonna go horribly left. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand still. I am not good at standing still. But God says, do you trust me to fight for you or not? And God gives them a promise. He goes, these enemies that you see, they will not exist past today. All you need to do is let me fight for you. Is it possible that God is asking you to let him fight for you? Rather than have you continue to strive and scrap and claw and bloody your fingernails trying to figure it out all on your own. The Israelites don't understand that God's fighting style is different than theirs. They can only conceive of conventional weapons in traditional combat. They see a bunch of guys with swords and chariots, and they go, we have no swords, we have no chariots, we're going to lose. But God knows that only a miracle will draw both Israel and Egypt to worship. Because remember what God said. God didn't just say, he goes, I, I'm not going to just deliver you from your enemies so that you can know that I'm the Lord. I'm going to deliver you from your enemies so that they can know that I'm the Lord. There are two nations that God has tried to draw to himself in this moment, both the Israelites and the Egyptians. God knows only a miracle will pull them both in, so he pushes the water up into a wall and lets the Israelites, all between 600,000 and 2 million of them, walk across on dry land. And when the last Israelite steps on the far shore of the sea, God breaks the invisible dam and a torrent of water engulfs the Egyptians, their horses, their men, their chariots, their weapons. In my own time with the Lord, I've been kind of going through the book of Psalms this summer. And yesterday I read this in Psalm 77, verse 19, referring to this story. The writer said, God, when we were stuck, your road led through the sea. Your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. A pathway no one knew was there. Some of you, you're living your life in a, a set of panic. 
because you have, you have no idea how you can get out. And God says, I know of a way that you have not even conceived yet. Will you trust me? When the stunned Israelites watch this happen, they burst into song. I don't know if it was a spontaneous song or like if Moses kind of wrote it and then just texted it to everybody. I'm not exactly sure how this worked, but we read this in verse one. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song, their freedom song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord. For he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. Not nudged into the sea, hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers, his special forces, they're drowned in the Red Sea. Deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. Moses' song has a very simple formula. It goes like this. I will. God is. He has. I will. God is. He has. I will sing to the Lord. I am making a declaration of my will. I am making a conscious choice. This isn't just like praise that burst out of me. I am thinking about it and I am choosing to do it. God is what? God is highly exalted. You know how I know that he's highly exalted? Because all of his enemies are at the bottom of the sea. And he has what? He has thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. Verse eight, by the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The surging water stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I'll draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. What are they saying? God has been good. How do we know? We have some evidence. Now, in seasons of grief, it can often be hard for us to locate the goodness of God because the only thing that we can identify most recently is the heartache or the tragedy or the carnage of a loss or disappointment. But in her book, Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy, Cheryl Sandberg tells the story of losing her husband suddenly at age 47, to a cardiac arrhythmia. She speaks of the importance of fighting for gratitude in the face of loss. And she said that she and her two children used to do kind of high-low. What was the best part of my day? What was the worst part of my day? And they said, and after her husband and their father died, they added a third conversation point, and that is, what's one thing that we're grateful for today? She says, counting blessings can actually increase happiness and health and remind us of the good things in life. Each night, no matter how sad I felt, I would find something or someone to be grateful for. What's she saying in her own way? She's saying, I will praise him. God is good. And in the midst of all the heartache, here's one thing I can point to today that is beautiful. He has provided this for me now. Verse 11, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. 
In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. What's happening here? This isn't just a look back to say, God, isn't it great? You defeated the Egyptians. This is a look forward. It's saying, Lord, this was not the only enemy we'll ever face, Egypt. We know that around the corner in our future journey, we're going to have to contend with the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Canaanites. But we're not afraid. We can, we can go into all of those battles without flinching because we know that you have been faithful here. We can count on you to be faithful here, 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 and here. He has destroyed our enemies. He is unfailing love. The nations will know that he is God. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. Verse 19, when Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the water of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Verse 20, then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel, the tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her. With timbrels and dancing, Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. There it is again. I will sing. God is exalted. He has hurled horse and rider into the sea. This is the aim of corporate worship. We choose to declare God's goodness regardless of any circumstances or feelings. We declare his character. He is faithful. He is good. He is peace. He is salvation. He is provision. How do I know it? He has hurled, tossed, thrown, cast my oppressor into the sea. So if you were to roll the tape on your life, can you point to an event at least one dramatic event where you say, I was pinned up against the wall and God shifted the earth to let me out. I was facing despair. I was facing oppression. I was facing darkness. I was facing spiritual slavery. And God did something that I could not envision and set me free. Now, sometimes that freedom is something that is instantaneous. Sometimes when God sets us free, he sets us free in a miraculous and instantaneous way that he did for the Israelites. Other times, God allows that freedom to unveil or roll out over weeks and months. Especially when we talk about addiction. I, I remember growing up in an awesome Pentecostal church and they would always bring in the, the guys of the kind of the urban choir and you'd hear stories of guys who were like, on Tuesday I was addicted to heroin and on Wednesday I was free and I never was tempted to go back. But then I have other friends who are like, I've been going to AA for 12 years and it is a hard battle. My sobriety is intact. I praise God for it. But, but that desire never instantly evaporated. So sometimes that freedom takes different forms. Like you're still free, but the way that you get there could look different based on what God knows we need in that season. Why is it so critical that we come together in small groups we come together as families. We come together as a church to say, I will, God is, he has. Why is it important that we do that? Because like the Israelites, we are a people who are prone to spiritual memory loss. 
I would like to tell you that the Israelites sang this awesome song and because God was good to them with the Egyptians, they took on all of their future enemies the next week and were in the promised land inside of 10 days. How many of you know that that's not the way the story ends? Like they have this amazing marking moment at the beginning and then they, God gives them a 40-year timeout because they don't really trust him. How long between when God parts the Red Sea to set them free to when they forget their freedom song. How long? This is what we read, not in the next chapter, but in the very next verse. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. This is why the place is called Mara. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Three days. I don't know about you. I would like to think that if I saw God part an ocean, I would be good for at least a week. Three days. Three days. And what they go into is they, they don't sing this rock anthem of deliverance. They revert into this pitiful and mournful dirge. You could call it the complainer's manifesto. Instead of saying, I will, God is, he has, they say, we won't, God isn't, God doesn't. Why? Why is it so important that we come together and remind one another of God's faithfulness? Why do you pick me up on my low days so that I can pick you up on yours? Because we need a community to remind one another of God's freedom so that we don't revert back into slavery, which is what Paul says in Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. Why would you ever go back? But you look at the Israelites and they're tempted to go back all the time. Like, oh, it's hard again. We want to go back to being slaves. We had better food when we were slaves. We had better lodging when we were slaves. We were getting chased around as much when we were slaves. And God says, what do you want? Do you want to be free? Or do you want to be comfortable? That's why it's so critical for us to gather regularly to remind one another of what is true on the best days and especially on the worst days. I want to be a part of a community just like this one where we sing, I will praise him. Why? Because God is exalted, that he is higher than any other threat, temptation, or rival. How do I know it? Because he has hurled horse and rider into the sea. And if you cannot point to a moment in your life where God has hurled your version of horse and rider into the sea, it could be that you have not yet had a dramatic exchange with the creator of the universe, the living God, where you have been set free from whatever darkness it is that has followed you in your existence up until this point. In some ways, I get jealous that I didn't get to see like this major nature miracle the way that the Israelites saw it. But you know what miracle you and I have witnessed? You know what miracle we have access to that they didn't? It's the greatest miracle of all. It's the fact that Jesus Christ died a horrific death on a cross so that you and I wouldn't have to. He was dead, he was buried, and he rose again. So they got dry ground in the middle of a sea. You know what we get? We get an empty tomb in the midst of a dying world.
And the empty tomb says what? Jesus says, if I have defeated, not just some Egyptian army long ago, if I have defeated death and sin and hell in all of its forms, what do you need to be afraid of? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And in so many ways, I really do believe that the, the evil one, the enemy of our souls, keeps lying to us. It's the father of lies and keeps saying, God can't be trusted. God doesn't care about you. This isn't going to end well. And the best antidote to lies is the truth and say, I will praise him. God is exalted. And he is, he has thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. And because he did it before, I have every reason to believe that he's going to do it again.